This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, tonight's talk is, ta- is called Unfracking the Future Through Developing Civic Technoscience. Please give a warm Santa Barbara welcome to Professor Sarah Ann Wiley. Hi, thank you very much for that warm welcome. I really appreciate you all coming out on a Wednesday evening um, to hear about my work, which um, has followed the boom in fracking um, since 2005. Um, And so this book took over 10 years of work. And what I'm going to be talking to you about tonight is the lived experiences of people whose lives have been transformed by the development of unconventional energy um, through hydraulic fracking. Um, So hydraulic fracking was really promised to, and unconventional energy was promised to be this bridge fuel to the low carbon economy of the future, right? And what I'm going to describe to you tonight is how rather than bringing about that energy revolution, uh, empirically what we've seen as we have expanded unconventional energy across the United States um, is a re-entrenching of the two industries that really define our modern infrastructures, fossil fuels, so oil and natural gas, and petrochemicals. And what really interests me as somebody who looks at the chemicals used in fracking is the way in which this industry is sort of like a a snake eating its own tail, um, producing, I've I've made a a handy little demonstration for you guys of this, a Mobius strip um, in which we have unconventional energy um, that is, was sold as increasing methane production, so increasing natural gas, but it's also very effective in increasing oil production. So we've seen a dramatic production in oil um, uh, over the past 20 years, which is actually increasing climate change through both the powerful uh, um, fugitive uh, methane emissions, which is 84 times uh, uh, more intense as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, and also the increase um, in the production of oil, which has made uh, the U.S. Uh, the world leader in oil production in 2014, um, beating out Saudi Arabia uh, and really changing, ooh, I do have a pointer, uh, really changing um, the dynamics of global energy production and bringing oil and gas wells to within a mile of 17.6 million American homes. And um, so while it was sold as really producing this bridge to, uh, to a low-carbon economy, what we've actually seen is a boom in both oil production and in another industry that's downstream of oil production, and that's petrochemical production. So I'm going to talk about the chemicals that are used in fracking and the way in which fracking has dramatically reduced the cost of producing some of the key feedstocks um, for petrochemicals, so, uh, which is ethylene. Um, and we're going to be looking at how these two... Um, industries, these two twin toxicities of late modernity, climate change and endocrine disruption and toxic contamination, where we each carry a body burden now of about two to 300 different synthetic chemicals, many of which have never been tested for their ability to interfere with our hormonal systems and disrupt how we develop um, in utero, how our immune system develops, how our reproductive system develops, and how our neurological system develops. And so this industry, rather than bringing about a revolution, has really re entrenched um, both the oil, gas, and petrochemical industries and um, aggravating these two twin toxicities um, of 
contemporary life, uh, climate change and uh, endocrine disruption and toxic contamination. And so I'm going to be describing how did that how did that happen? How did we not analyze um, the overall life cycle impact of beginning to produce um, energy in this way in over 30 states? Um, and uh, what role uh, did academic institutions play in that? So I'm, I'm really interested uh, in the way in which this industry was animated by a long investment, both from federal um, support and from um, uh, academic and corporate collaborations that have built very intense technical infrastructures that have let us identify oil and gas reserves all over the world, but at the same time created structural blindnesses to the environmental health impacts associated with extracting our energy resources in this way. So I'm going to be describing um, these extractive research economies um, that have been developed and kind of underlie the practice of actually physically extracting oil and gas from um, these uh, wells across the country. Each of the red dots here is an oil and gas well drilled since 2000. Um, and the profound research holes, the sort of information vacuums that have been generated to allow this boom to unfold, and how in combination this is producing what I describe as that fracking Mobius strip, where we're actually um, rebuilding or reiterating um, on common themes of, of modernity. Um, so let's get back to basics a bit here. What is unconventional energy? What is hydraulic fracking? So hydraulic fracking is a way of accessing oil and gas from what's called an unconventional reserve. In a conventional reserve of natural gas or oil, the oil is trapped under a non-porous capstone. And so um, you know, to get oil out, you just needed to drill a hole into it, and the pressure itself would release that that oil and gas to the surface. In an unconventional reserve, you can imagine the oil and gas is in um, sort of like a sponge just uh, holding water. And there, it's not under the same kind of pressure. And so in order to get that oil or gas to the well, um, what we have developed over 30 years of uh, federal and company investments is a way of injecting large volumes of fluid, and I mean very large volumes of fluid, a million gallons or so, um, it, at very high pressures underground, we're talking thousands of feet underground, um, at pressures enough to create a mini seismic event that creates fractures in that sponge, the coal bed or the, t or the um, sandstone that's holding the natural gas or oil to create roots for that resource to flow to the pipeline. And those roots are propped open with small... Um, uh, small bits of sand called propens. Now, the, uh, the sound of this happening is quite profound to create the kind of force um, that's going to produce these, uh, this mini seismic event. Um, you have uh, the equivalent of 23 tanker truck engines starting up simultaneously to create the kind of um, pressure and force required to get this fluid underground. And so uh, the combination of hydraulic fracking and horizontal drilling, so um, has completely changed the terrain of resource extraction. So rather than just searching for the spot where oil and gas is, apparently it's louder here, um, or, uh, and uh, you can now sink a well into anywhere in this band and force it to produce. And so wells are fracked from three to 40 times in their life cycle. The, on average, wells in the US are fracked 10 times. So we're talking about 10 million gallons of fluid um, for a single well. And when you start to think of the scale um, 
of that waste stream, it's just extraordinary, um, the amount of water um, used in this practice. Um, so this to give you a sense, this is an 18-wheel truck, and these are evaporation pits um, of waste fluid uh, from Colorado when I was doing research there in the beginning of the boom in 2006. And uh, so this, you know, while we expanded this industry so rapidly across so many states, we really didn't think about what are we going to do. No, nobody modeled what are we going to do with this enormous waste stream. And so some of the problems associated with fracking, I'm sure many of you have heard, are induced earthquakes from trying to get rid of this waste by re-injecting it underground in Alabama and in Texas. But for communities who live around these um, new um, ponds of industrial waste, um, uh, people started getting sick, um, getting, developing rashes, developing nosebleeds, wondering what's being emitted um, from these open-air pits. And back in 2004, 2005, there was no federal monitoring of fracking, no federal monitoring of the chemicals used um, in uh, hydraulic fracking because of an industry exemption from the Safe Drinking Water Act. Um, that was achieved with the 2005 Energy Policy Act. And so this um, act, basically, uh, this exemption, basically meant that while we have expanded this uh, industry so dramatically, we really have not been monitoring um, what is being used where um, and whether or not it's impacting uh, regions of uh, underground drinking water or usable drinking water. So one of the things that really interests me academically is the way in which we have these enormous information gaps um, but this industry is driven um, by information technology. So the process of fracking or the process of unconventional energy extraction begins uh, with the gathering of seismic data um, in what I describe as extractive research economies, um, where these are some images of uh, the information system that animates um, Schlumberger, one of the three leading oil field services companies. And oil field services companies provide hydraulic fracking. Um, Halliburton is uh, the second leading oil field services company. And these uh, boats here show um, the uh, 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 water-based seismic uh, imaging that's uh, done by Schlumberger. And these are the largest moving man-made objects on Earth. Um, they actually uh, tow streamers of 124 kilometers um, with uh, little sensors on them that gather data about the subsurface um, based on sound waves that are pinged into the ocean floor. And that data is then sent through um, satellites up to uh, Schlumberger private uh, satellite network um, into supercomputing hubs in Texas and then um, rendered into three-dimensional and four-dimensional virtual reality models. So this industry started using virtual reality um, in the 90s um, to create uh, VR experiences um, from offices in Houston, in Tokyo, in New York, in Paris, where people who are you know, oil majors who are planning oil and gas extraction can walk through these maps of the sub surface and imagine and begin to plan for the extractive process. 
So we have built a globe-spanning architecture to extract seismic data. On land, uh, we have planes that drop sensors from them and specialized equipment called thumpers that come in and thump the land to generate seismic uh, data. And this has also been supported um, by the US federal government. But what's really interesting to me is the way in which people um, who live on this surface, um, who are most impacted by what's going to happen as oil and gas extraction unfolds, are entirely left out um, of this process. That data is kind of extracted from beneath their feet, and then they are left out of the process of um, deciding what's going to happen next, of of, um, beginning to change regulations to make it possible to drill in suburban Cleveland, for instance. Um, And this... uh, So I wanted to just segue into a story of what it's like as a landowner um, who in general experience the beginning of um, hydraulic fracking or drilling near them as a surprise. Um, And this is a a woman who I first met, one of the first people I met in the uh, Colorado gas patch, Laura Amos, um, who was approached in the late 90s uh, by a company that had owned the mineral rights beneath her property. And uh, they, Ballard Energy basically showed up and said, we own the um, subsurface here, we're going to be drilling to extract gas. And at that time, there weren't actually um, surface rights um, agreements in place in Colorado. So Laura had very little option but to let them um, come onto her property and drill. Um, And so her um, sort of whole um, rural area of Colorado was transformed um, by this drilling. And she didn't think much of it at this point. She didn't identify as an environmentalist. Laura uh, leads wilderness hunting trips for for business people at this time. She's actually a mountain lion bow huntress. Um, And, you know, was really not somebody who was anti-fracking or anti oil and gas in in any way until her water well exploded in 2001, coincident with a fracking operation at a well near her property. And her water exploded and started coming up grey and goopy and was shot through with methane, about as much methane as water can hold. And um, the company said, well, we're not responsible for that, um, but started providing water until the visual contamination subsided. Three years later, she developed a rare form of adrenal tumor. And um, again, she didn't necessarily connect this um, to chemicals contaminating her water, potentially associated with fracking, until um, she was reading online, because she had become an an activist around oil and gas after this point, because her water's been contaminated, her property values declined, she's worried for her daughter's health, she's worried for the safety um, on her farm. And what she found was, um, in reading this memo that had been submitted to the Bureau of Land Management about chemicals potentially to be used uh, in fracking in Colorado, um, that one thing stuck out to her, a chemical called 2-BE, 2-butoxyethanol, which this memo described um, as creating elevated numbers of combined malignant and non-malignant tumors of the adrenal gland. And she had a moment. Could my adrenal tumor be related to contamination of, of my water? And so she looked at who had written uh, that memo, and um, little did she know, it was written by a world-famous environmental scientist, Theo Colborn, who happens to live also in rural Colorado, in Paonia, a mining community, and she works on endocrine disruptors. So Theo Colborn is a really interesting scientific figure. She um, did her PhD when she was 50 and made all of these 
um, really groundbreaking discoveries in her 60s, linking the problem of synthetic chemicals in the Great Lakes to all sorts of um, endocrine-related health problems that um, uh, the sort of top-order predators in the Great Lakes were having. Um, neurological problems, reproductive problems, and immunological problems. And she first formulated the idea that there might be a systematic problem associated with synthetic chemicals um, disrupting our hormonal systems. So Theo was really tuned to the idea that these chemical contaminations could, these, uh, these chemicals could potentially be harmful. But she thought this was going to be harmful in 10 years' time, 20 years' time. She did not expect to hear from somebody in two years saying uh, they had an adrenal tumor and uh, their water well had exploded from fracking, and could it be related? And so Laura then started to try and dig into, um, was I exposed to 2BE? Was this used in my well? And thinking about the way in which we have expanded this industry, um, people who are on the front lines of this, who are worst affected, like Laura, tend to be the people who bear the burden to actually prove the harm. And think about how inequitable that is. Your um, property value has declined, your health has declined, you're struggling through surgeries, you're struggling to keep your daughter happy, you're concerned that your daughter might still be being contaminated every time you're bathing her. And on top of that, she's now in the position of trying to prove that her tumor is related to 2BE exposure, which is basically a Sisyphean and impossible task because of a combination of scientific barriers and regulatory and legal barriers. So I mentioned before, because of the exemption from the Safe Drinking Water Act, there is no state or federal monitoring of the chemicals used in fracking, which meant there's no preservation of water samples, so she couldn't go back and test the water. Um, we actually have no human toxicological studies um, on the hazards associated with 2BE, so there wasn't much in the literature to turn to. We have a problem with disease latency uh, leading to etiological uncertainty about the many different things that could potentially cause adrenal tumors, even though she has no family history. And at this point, almost utter academic disinterest to the problems of chemicals used in fracking. So despite the fact that we've had a lot of academic investment in the technical development of fracking, we have not had parallel investment in the um, predicting or modeling of the environmental health consequences of that practice. And then combine those scientific barriers with frankly dismissive regulators um, who told Laura that her 2BE exposure could have come from Windex. Um, uh, almost all of the regulators in the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Committee at this point came from an industry background because their primary mandate is to develop oil and gas. Um, and then there's the question of proprietary data. So the oil field services companies, Schlumberger and Halliburton, lobbied very hard to maintain proprietary data around um, fracking chemicals. In um, 1997, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in Alabama ruled that fracking was, by the plain language of the Safe Drinking Water Act, a form of underground injection, and that therefore each state would need to have an underground injection control plan that would require actual monitoring and um, proving that uh, usable sources of drinking water were not being contaminated. Um, However, uh, when Bush and Cheney took office, Dick Cheney is CEO of Halliburton, one of the companies that's most poised and has most benefited from the expansion of hydraulic fracking. His energy task force was lobbied um, on the need to have an exemption for fracking for the Safe Drinking Water Act. Many of those documents uh, were kept out of the public eye and had to be recovered under Freedom of Information Act requests, which my uh, book works with uh, the results of those Freedom of Information Act requests. 
tests. And um, then also there was a very compromised study done by the EPA following that um, legal ruling um, that found that uh, fracking would not contaminate water in the case of coal bed methane extraction. And whistleblowers within the EPA came out to describe how compromised this study was. Five of the seven review members had direct conflicts of interest by EPA's own standards. And yet, uh, in 2005, when the Energy Policy Act passed, that exemption went through from the Safe Drinking Water Act. So why do these companies care so much about their proprietary data? It's in part because oil field services companies are driven by their intellectual property. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, they're information generating um, industries. That's, wh that's what they build and that is their market edge. They don't uh, compete with the oil majors to actually extract oil and natural gas. Um, what they do is help them extract oil and gas more effectively. So Schlumberger and Halliburton are worried about each other finding out um, their formulas. Um, like Coke and Pepsi. So, but in that proprietary data, you then have this vacuum um, that transforms the life of somebody like Laura, who can't um, prove whether or not her tumor is related to, uh, to BE exposure. And that situation is made even worse by the subcontractual relationships that this uh, industry is built upon. So by the time Laura had actually um, developed this tumor, read that memo, the well um, in question had changed hands three times. And all of the uh, different functions on the well, the fracking of the well, the cementing of the well, um, was achieved by subcontracts. And so it makes it incredibly difficult to combine the actual history of what happened at her well. And each company, as happened um, following the Gulf oil spill, can turn to each other and say, well, it's not really my fault, that must be your fault. Um, and it creates this incredibly lengthy and uh, costly legal discovery process in which Laura eventually did find, despite the company saying 2BE wasn't used, that 2BE had been used on a well um, and that could have contaminated her water. Still, with all of that, there was no way she was going to be able to prove this connection in court. So she really had no other choice um, than to sign a non-disclosure agreement, to get enough money to be able to move off of her contaminated property. And think about this. She's basically signing away her First Amendment right to talk about her experiences. That non-disclosure agreement came with clauses that she cannot say, uh, warnings about people she is no longer supposed to associate with. Um, and what it does is really further cripple our ability to study the environmental health impacts of this problem. So uh, Laura's story cannot be aggregated with other people who've been exposed to 2BE. And other people have been exposed to 2BE. It was one of the primary chemicals used in core exit, um, the spill, the um, dispersant used in the Gulf oil spill. And we had yet again uh, a whole another range of people exposed to this uh, chemical who similarly, like Laura, have faced this horrible problem of trying to prove their harm while their uh, lives are, you know, in real jeopardy. Um, so this industry, this boom, has been animated through the sequestering of information as much as it's been animated through the production of technical systems that enable the production of information that's useful um, to the development of this extraction. Um, and that has been achieved through very close relationships um, in a lot of ways with academic universities who have chosen to study some problems and not others. So one classic example of this is a report that came out from MIT's 
Energy Initiative, um, the future of natural gas. Right as public debate was really building up about the health and safety of fracking, this study came out to um, can provide the confirmation that natural gas truly is a bridge fuel to a low-carbon future. And this uh, report was published as a draft report online, not peer-reviewed, um, and was very important in policy circles, um, but not really checked in any of the sense uh, that we normally do uh, with a scientific um, publication. Um, but it had the instrumental effect of allaying public concern in some ways and also providing this promise that natural gas was going to lead us to this uh, low-carbon economy. So I just want to turn quickly to this fracking um, Mobius strip and the reasons why that argument um, is uh, so fundamentally flawed. Um, so one thing that nobody really discussed as fracking was was booming, um, is that fracking a, a natural gas is a very important feedstock for the production of ethylene. Um, it accounts for about 70% of the total cost of manufacturing ethylene. What is ethylene, you might ask? Ethylene is the largest production chemical uh, by volume globally um, because it is the feedstock for a vast array of um, petrochemicals. Uh, it, ethylene is used in almost every product category you can imagine. Paintings, textiles, adhesives, coolants, films, packaging, it's used in every major manufacturing sector. And so decreasing the cost of ethylene production makes it um, production of ethylene um, very attractive in the US. And this is leading to an enormous expansion in the cracking of natural gas to form ethylene, with Dow investing $6 billion to expand chemical production facilities, um, with Shell building a multi-million dollar ethane cracking and polyethylene production facility in Pennsylvania. So we now have Pennsylvania emerging as a chemical production hub, sort of similar um, to the Louisiana Chemical Corridor, uh, which is associated, as many of you probably know, with many environmental justice concerns. And when you start to look at who is making ethylene, you again see that the top ethylene producers are actually often oil majors. So ExxonMobil, Royal Dutch Shell, Total, and Chevron. Um, and these are the industries that are really poised to benefit um, from the low cost of manufacturing ethylene. So we now have this very chemically intensive practice and what chemical is used, manufactured with uh, ethylene? 2-butoxyethanol, where we have a consumption of these chemicals and a production of these chemicals um, that is forming like a snake that eats its own tail. Um, and so beyond the boom in um, petrochemical production associated with the growth of fracking, we have the boom in oil production. So while this was sold as a, a, you know, a bridge fuel to producing much more natural gas and producing a low-carbon economy, really nobody talked about the fact that this is just as effective in extracting oil. So what we have seen is a dramatic increase in the production of oil um, in the US. To, toward the Obama administration, domestic oil production increased by 88%, the largest increase in um, oil production under any administration in history. So at a time when we start to live the realities of climate change, what we're actually seeing is a reduction in the cost of oil, in the cost of um, uh, oil-dependent products that's causing a reinvestment in fossil fuel-driven infrastructures um, by major banks. So in the past three years, the world's largest investment banks collectively invested $306 billion in extreme oil. 
The top 25 banks invested nine times more in fossil fuels than in renewables from 2004 to 2014. Now, these are investments. They expect to get a return on them, right? They expect these to be profitable. And so what we're building is a financial commitment in our, in our financial markets, um, in, our, in our pension funds, um, to uh, profitable fossil fuel futures and an infrastructure um, to support that. So things like the development of the DAPL and the recently stopped um, Keystone pipeline on the promise that this is going to provide um, more jobs. But this infrastructure is also going to demand more oil, right? That's, you're not building a pipeline um, to not continue to use it. Um, so rather than transforming our energy economies, what we've seen with fracking is actually a retrenching of these industries that are as wealthy and long-lived as nations. Um, you know, but also at the same time a disabling of the ability to really study um, these industries um, from a social and from an environmental health perspective. So how do we really start to grapple with these industries? Do we need to create departments of, of Exxon studies, of BP studies like we do when we think of other um, culturally persistent forms like nations? Um, so I'm just going to switch gears a bit now from this sort of um, depressing and um, we'll never get out of fossil fuels theme um, to thinking about what we could do. How can we build alternative um, technical and scientific infrastructures that produce different kinds um, of economies, different kind of socialities and different kinds of politics, um, what I describe as a civic technoscience. Because one of the things that was really disabled in the boom um, of um, unconventional energy was the ability to have a civic conversation about how we wish to live collectively. What does developing our resources, becoming more and more dependent on fossil fuels and petrochemicals in these ways um, mean for us um, as, uh, you know, a, a an ecological community. So I'm going to go through a set of possible tactics as quickly as possible. Um, so one tactic, and this is what um, Theo Colborn and her organization, the Endocrine Disruption, did in response to that phone call from Laura, was start to predict the possible systematic harms from fracking by looking at the practice in aggregate. So they built the first database of chemicals used in hydraulic fracking and looked at the health effects of all of those chemicals. And rather than picking out the single worst chemicals or doing an epidemiological study of communities exposed to fracking, they said, well, what could we expect to find if people were exposed to these chemicals? And the situation they found is, uh, you know, pretty scary. So um, this is from a figure. Uh, they first released their database in 2006, and then they've been building on it since this is data from their 2011 study, where they looked at, for instance, the 131 volatile chemicals used in fracking. So these are chemicals that evaporate into the air. And if you remember back to um, some of those images of waste pits, we now have people living by pits who one of their primary purposes is to just let some of this stuff evaporate so we can get rid of it. Um, you see in gray here the number of chemicals that are associated with brain and nervous system effects. So almost 90% of them. Um, above 90% of both the volatile and the soluble, the ones that dissolve in water, um, are skin sense organ toxicants. So what they did was look across all of these different organ systems, and you can see endocrine disruptors here. They predicted that about 40% of them um, could, could um, be endocrine disruptors. And this database had a really transformative effect on the public conversation around um, hydraulic fracking. Uh, it helped stimulate the first 
first um, congressional um, debate about the health effects of, of fracking, Waxner, Markey, and DeGette's investigation into fracking fluids. Um, it informed Josh Fox's decision to begin making gas lands when he read about their research with the Damascus Citizens Alliance. And crucially, it actually let the EPA begin to investigate um, potential water contamination associated with fracking um, because it turned up so many chemicals that were listed and regulated under Superfund laws. Um, and the research done by uh, EPA under, um, based on their list in Pavilion, Wyoming, uh, was one of the first studies to show water contamination associated with fracking and what chemical did they find but break down products of um, 2BE in people's um, drinking water wells. Uh, we can go into why that was never released into the public um, in discussion, if you like. But this tactic of modeling and trying to predict the systematic harms by looking at all of the chemicals together um, has helped build a booming field of research into um, health effects associated with, with fracking, as this chart from the Endocrine Disruption Exchange shows. And so now we've had six epidemiological public health studies to demonstrate that people who live in close proximity to oil and gas wells um, have an increased incidence of childhood leukemia, asthma attacks, congenital heart defects, low birth weight and preterm birth compared to people who um, don't live by unconventional oil and gas production. I'd like you guys to sit and think for a second about what this means. This means that we have let six communities um, develop this set of illnesses in order to prove that this is harmful. You know, in some ways, this is great progress. I'm glad we're developing data about the harms of this, but really unpleasant uh, to be, happen to be one of these people, like Laura Amos, who becomes a figure in one of these studies. And this is currently how we drive our environmental health work. We wait for, for people to get sick in a statistically significant enough way um, for us to build response. And you can bet that these six epidemiological studies will not be enough. Um, you know, we will need to go back and do many, many, many more studies if we ever expect to see hydraulic fracking to slow down. So how could we um, be more proactive? How can we develop a science that is more driven by community needs? Because people on the front lines of this extraction are the best sensors for how it's changing themselves, their bodies, and their environments. Um, so I went back to MIT, having done ethnographic work in Colorado, and started a project at the Media Lab called Extract, where we built web tools for community monitoring of the oil and gas industry. And this is a screenshot from one of our first projects, Wellwatch, where we, for the first time, integrated data across five states into a publicly available database where you could plug in your zip code and find out about oil and gas wells near you. You could add your own photos, you could add complaints, and you could add notes. These are um, complaints and notes that were added to Wellwatch um, from the region where I did ethnographic work in Colorado. And people use this for all sorts of different things. They used it as diaries of their exposure experiences, which is really helpful because now they've got a time and date stamped thing saying they um, had this experience on this day, so it helps create for them a legal record. It also helps create a sense of community. Um, people shared their photos. They shared information on doctors that they've worked with, information on people in regulatory agencies that they had found helpful. This helped build community with people who are very structurally isolated. So Laura might be the only per person in uh, you know, her um, area to get her water well explode, but with a medium like Wellwatch, you could connect her with somebody in Ohio who's similarly 
had that problem and start to build community across this, across this industry. So this is an example of a doctor's note um, that was submitted to Wellwatch, which described the th um, three families that he worked with, unexplained red rashes, they illustrated those with images, nosebleeds uh, developed for no apparent reasons, flu-like symptoms, headaches, body aches, fatigue and dizziness. And if you think about the things that TEDx predicted, skin, sense, organ toxicants, neurological problems, um, what you see again and again is um, uh, people who live in the oil and gas patch echoing um, what the endocrine disruption exchange predicted. So beyond um, gathering people's stories, beyond starting to build open source systems where we can um, help build community and research at the same time, how can we increase and, uh, the ability of people on the grass at the front lines of this to gather their own data? And um, so this is what I uh, went to work on following the Gulf oil spill, uh, where I was part of co-founding Public Lab, where we're interested in developing low-cost tools for communities to use things like their cell phones to gather their own environmental data. And in the wake of the Gulf oil spill, there was a flyover ban that prevented images of the spill circulating into the public. Um, so we worked with Louisiana Buffett Brigade to send out people with helium balloons and attach digital cameras to them. And then um, a colleague of mine had written a piece of open source software so they could stitch those images together and make high resolution um, type maps. And based on this work, we received half a million dollars from the Knight Foundation to form Public Lab. And what we've developed is an open source online forum for public research and development of scientific instruments themselves. So you can see here this practice of balloon mapping has spread globally. These are maps that people have made um, of environmental issues near them, illegal logging operations, um, mines that they're interested in looking at. Um, and then you can also go to public lab and you can find out how to make a a grassroots mapping kit or everything you need um, to start grassroots mapping. But like an open source software project, you can also contribute back to it. So if you develop something new or another iteration on it, um, you can share that back with the community. And all of our um, hardware is licensed um, with an open hardware license. So if you iterate on it and further develop it, you're actually required to share it back in the public domain. And what this is creating is a public um, collection of low-cost research tools um, for specifically for communities to begin their own environmental monitoring. So we have water sensors, um, we have a, a really neat hack for a digital camera that will let you see into the near-infrared range with just a, a regular digital camera which can tell you about um, plant health and you can do things like NDVI calculations like you can do from satellites. NASA has very helpfully um, developed all of the um, ways to use NDVI and, and we can uh, build on all of that within public lab. We developed a spectrometer attack um, for your cell phone so you can start to investigate what you might find in a solution. And my lab at Northeastern has, developed, has been developing a low-cost way of mapping hydrogen sulfide, a neurotoxic gas um, that's also produced during natural gas production. So working with such tools, you can actually kind of change the dynamics of research to make them more community-driven um, in a way that provides actionable data and actually builds research communities. So just a small case study on that. Is anybody from Chicago? Chicagoans in the audience. This is the southeast side of Chicago. This is the Calumet River, historically a center for steel production. And this big black pile here is a pile of pet coke waste, which is a byproduct from um, burning of, um, from refining of tar sands. And it's actually shipped to China where it's used as a, a low cost fuel. Um, but 
you know, it also, before it heads out there, was blowing around the neighborhoods in southeast um, uh, Chicago, um, spreading particulate matter all over the place. Um, and the community here had been used to seeing these enormous black piles and thought that this, this, uh, these piles were just coal, like the ones they were used to. But it turned out um, this was an entirely new product that the uh, community really hadn't been informed of at all as, um, as this started to be stored along their... Um, you know, along their neighborhoods. And so they wanted to take their own images um, of these pet coke waste piles. So a student of mine um, and a colleague of mine from MIT went out and trained them in how to balloon map. And they organized community events where they brought kids out. Um, they brought, um, yeah, they, they brought interested community members. People came out because they're flying an enormous balloon. It's kind of obvious that they're doing something to find out what they're doing. And so these research events became community-generating events. And then it provided data, these images, um, that they could take themselves um, of these waste pits that they could use in their social media campaign, that they could take to town hall, um, where they could illustrate what these waste pits um, actually look like. And you can see how close this is to, to people's homes. Um, and this was a small part of a very successful campaign that has resulted in the banning of pet coke storage along the Calumet River and the Coke brothers um, closing this facility. And they, uh, their uh, community organizations, the Southeast Environmental Task Force and Ban Pet Coke, have continued to use citizen science in their later, um, in, in their later campaigns. So now they're using citizen science to look at manganese, um, which is spreading in the community because it's stored also along the river. So we can um, create more performative forms of data gathering that let communities um, generate immediately actionable data. And a photo is a very useful um, kind of data. Um, So another big hole around oil and gas extraction is the production of hydrogen sulfide, um, which is one of the leading causes of workplace injury in the U.S. There's no mystery that this is toxic. Um, It can uh, knock you out and kill you at high enough doses. And if you work in the oil field, then you're going to be trained on what it means to be exposed to hydrogen sulfide. You might be wearing a monitor um, and um, you know what this gas is. This is the kind of warning that communities get, um, a sort of rusted out sign with uh, you know, a, a chemical name on it that really doesn't tell them anything uh, about this uh, risk. Um, and so it's not just that we haven't developed a kind of an infrastructure for gathering data um, from the grassroots. We also haven't developed the right kind of instruments for community-based research. So when you look at the instruments we've developed uh, to study hydrogen sulfide, for instance, they're designed for occupational uses. They're designed for uh, you know, somebody to walk around and take point samples. Um, and this is a Jerome meter. It costs about $15,000. It's the industry gold standard instrument for detecting H2S. Um, but really, this is not a design that is accessible for communities or that represents um, community exposure experiences. So we've been trying to fill that gap um, by using a super low-cost approach of um, using photographic paper. So uh, hydrogen sulfide is a corrosive gas. If you remember back to that picture of the oil tank, you could see all sorts of corrosion on it, and that's because H2S is is corrosive, and um, photographic paper has a very thin layer of silver in it, which corrodes. And so it's actually a very useful um, way of looking at how much hydrogen sulfide there is in the air by 
seeing how much um, photographic paper darkens with exposure to, um, to H2S-laden air. So this is a control sample of photographic paper on a well in Wyoming. This is an oil well in Wyoming. These are two waste pits um, of, of produced water, and they discharge into their riparian system, and it's supposed to discharge clean. And what we found as we put out these pieces of photographic paper is that um, after one week, we're seeing this is the private property boundary of, um, the, uh, of the oil pad. Um, and you can see how we were detecting H2S, this is the control, um, beyond that boundary. And then particularly over uh, one week, we saw a little bit of a, discharge, a darkening around the discharge canal. But after three weeks, we saw this really intense darkening um, around this discharge canal. We also took a, a grab sample at this location and found 48 parts per million um, of H2S. So currently, um, the industry is only supposed to uh, have regulation in place for accidental releases of H2S. But what we found just looking in this one location in Wyoming that is that this is not a case of accidental release. This is a case of chronic, um, uh, uh, chronic and routine release of H2S from this kind of site. So how can we develop um, tools that provide what I describe as data-rich images, where it doesn't, uh, it doesn't take a PhD to read that it's darker uh, in one area than it is from another. And each of these photographic paper canisters costs about 35 cents. So you can do this entire project um, for, you know, $20. Um, and so building on this preliminary work in Wyoming, what we've been doing now is testing the photopaper canister methods in places where H2S is regulated and comparing it to locations where it's not regulated. So we've worked in a major municipal sewage treatment plant and placed these canisters in a room where if you're working in there, you're supposed to be wearing a monitor for H2S, where there's alarms for H2S and the air is scrubbed clean before it's released to the atmosphere, and then comparing it um, to the levels that we see uh, in uh, are people who live around oil and gas wells, and built an integrated corrosion scale where we can look at how severe the corrosion is and compare what we find in people's properties to the level of corrosion that we're seeing in that regulated space inside the sewage treatment plant. So in recent work that we did in Saskatchewan, um, Canada, um, we found some homes where uh, outdoor samples, all of our indoor samples were nicely not contaminated, um, but we had outdoor samples way above um, that average in that sewage treatment plant. And what this does is raise that question of we know how to control hydrogen sulfide. We know how to train people in this risk, and we know how to manage it. And if we can manage it here, why can't we manage it around oil and gas extraction? And this kind of data, um, kind of um, similar to the TEDx database, um, kind of forces the industry to come to the table with its own data to respond to the data that the, uh, that the communities are generating. So uh, based on this work, uh, a couple of the community members that we worked with decided to share their results with um, an investigative reporting um, group called The Price of Oil. That's a consortium of the major news outlets in Canada, the Toronto Star and the Global News. And um, shared, they shared the stories of their experiences, their health experiences, the results um, from our preliminary data. We regard this data as being theirs first. Um, because it's taken on their property. They're, um, you know, they, they're the people who uh, did the monitoring. 
Um, and uh, from that work, uh, the um, uh, companies have already come out to some of their properties to check on the wells, inspect them with them, and agree to um, fix them up. And that kind of small-scale change is really vitally important to people living on the front lines of this industry. Um, you don't have to have a major-scale regulation to protect one family's health, which is a really important outcome for community-based environmental health work. Um, so it seemed like under the Obama administration there was real um, steam forming behind a movement towards citizen and community-based science. Um, Public Lab was invited to the first White House Maker Fair, and um, right in, in 2016, the National Advisory Council to the EPA released a report, Environmental Protection Belongs to the Public, a vision for citizen science at the EPA, which called for embracing citizen science as a core tenant for environmental protection, investing in citizen science for communities, partners, and the agency, enabling the use of citizen science data at the agency, and integrating citizen science into the full range of work at the EPA. And so this was a really um, sort of promising moment where the EPA has actually been testing citizen science tools um, and really trying to think about how can we bring environmental data generated by communities into our environmental regulation. Unfortunately, that landscape changed sort of profoundly uh, with the Trump administration. Um, so the next tactic that I wanted to talk about beyond uh, changing the kinds of instruments we use, developing community um, forms of science that are performative, uh, building networked databases to gather grassroots stories, is thinking about how we can network academics um, to work collaboratively to study, um, study systems. We really have a tradition within the academy of single-authored work often, um, and when it comes to studying environmental problems, um, a single author is never going to be enough. We cannot grasp these problems like climate change, endocrine disruption, um, or uh, you know, the influence and dismantling of environmental protections um, by ourselves. And so I've been part of organizing the Environmental Data and Governance Initiative, which is a coalition of over 175 different academics and non-profit groups and really dedicated volunteers um, who have organized these data rescue events across the country. Our aim is to respond to the dismantling of environmental protection um, at the federal level and to also offer new visions for what a more proactive, um, justice-driven environmental protection could look like that we call environmental data justice. And we started that work um, by organizing public events uh, for people to come and copy really important federal data for proving things like climate change, for looking at endangered species, the kind of the, the toxics release inventory, the kind of data that's absolutely crucial to making any kind of environmental justice claim. So we organized um, 60 or more of these events, and um, people came in um, just to spend a Saturday downloading federal data sets, transferring, to the transferring them to the University of Pennsylvania Library or the Internet Archive, um, and really making a statement that this data was produced with public money, um, it's been publicly funded, and it belongs in the public domain. Um, so here's a map of our, our data rescue events across the country. We also initiated monitoring of federal websites. So we monitor 25,000 federal web domains um, to look for changes um, in words like climate change, environmental justice, and we've informed over 120 news articles in our first year 
um, at major publications like the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Guardian showing how um, climate change um, and climate change research is being edited um, from federal websites to the degree that the EPA's own climate change resources website is not, no longer being updated um, and we just had a report saying it looks like they're never going to um, put these resources back on uh, the EPA's website dedicated to climate change and this is supposed to be our agency leading um, the protection uh, of our environment. Um, so beyond monitoring these uh, websites and uh, working with a network of journalists to share the changes that we find, we've also been writing these rapid academic um, publications that um, are peer-reviewed in the sense that we send them to peers who write open reviews about them and we share those reviews with the publication. Um, but rather than waiting for these to go through a scholarly cycle of analysis, we've been publishing our um, findings first and then submitting things for peer review um, following that. So this is a series of reports um, that I co-edited, EPA Under Siege, Pursuing a Toxic Agenda and Changing the Digital Climate, which track the ways in which um, the uh, administration has um, already, um, you know, creating conditions for increased environmental injustice, is already uh, engaging in climate denial in federal websites. And our most recent report, which just came out this month, looks at the uh, decline that's already in happening in enforcement at the EPA. Um, so we're already seeing uh, EPA enforcement actions at a 10-year low um, under the Trump administration with drops of, um, you know, I think... Uh, where is it in here? You know, 38% a decline in uh, initiation of, of cases um, under the Clean Water Act. Um, so really... Uh, limiting the actual oversight um, of these industries. So if we have a crumbling kind of federal infrastructure for enforcing our environmental laws, then how do we start to think about um, increasing public engagement and, um, and public um, recognition of these violations? So I just want to finish with two more uh, tactics for thinking about how to make environmental health research more public and more performative. And this is um, moving our research from the lab to the field. So rather than taking uh, samples in the field and moving them back to a lab, how can we start to bring data processing and data analysis into the site where contamination is happening? And we're doing this on a small scale by just connecting sensors to lights that change color and then using long exposure photography to paint data into the environment. So this is an experiment looking at using a thermometer with a light that changes color based on temperature. So when we drop it into the Charles River here and it's cold, it's nice and blue. As it gets warmer, it's going green, and as it goes red here, it's getting very hot. And this is because it's going through um, the wastewater discharge of the Kendall power plant, uh, which is just off the screen here. So how can we begin to recognize environmental contamination, environmental pollution in the places where it is happening by creating data um, that is more performative and again bringing back that idea of these data-rich images um, by actually trying to paint information into an environment rather than always reducing environmental data into numbers, which has a way of kind of taking a away the actual very physical nature uh, of environmental contamination. So one last example here working with um, the environmental justice organization Green Roots um, for Chelsea, a sister city to Boston, which bears most of the industrial burdens for Boston. It has seven oil storage facilities along its creek. The entire creek is zoned for industry, um, we did an analysis of the number of times that these uh, facilities have in aggregate violated their Clean Water Act permits. 
And what we found is that in aggregate, they violated them 76 times. And um, Global, which has four of those permits, accounts for about 60% of those violations. And rather than just stating that as a number, what we did is create an environmental performance where we built lanterns for each one of those violations and released them um, on the creek. So here's one of our youth leaders, Shakaya, explaining the event um, to, to our bilingual audience. Uh, here's our, um, one of the brochures designed by an undergraduate in architecture at Northeastern with these great LEDs that light up um, to show you the map and show you the, the diagram that I just showed you of the lanterns. And then here are the lanterns being released along the creek and the oil storage facilities in the background. And our aim is to share this again online as a kind of kit to say, uh, you know, are you a community dealing with Clean Water Act violations? You can do this kind of performance. How do we begin to um, really remind these industries that, that um, they're polluting a public space and that the public has a right to, um, to that and a right to oversight um, of that. Um, and uh, so this was all based on industry-supplied public data. It's just displacing it um, into a performance um, that people can actually see and actually access and discuss. So following this, we had a really animated community meeting because basically nobody knew uh, about even the Clean Water Act permits in the first place, let alone the violations. Um, so just to finish up here, in thinking about developing a more civic technoscience, a, civ a science that allows us to begin to contemplate how we wish to live together collectively, um, I think we need to build open source public data infrastructures and tools to analyze systematic industrial harms. So tools like WellWatch. Combined advocacy and research efforts on um, industrially related environmental health problems like climate change and endocrine disruptors. Create digital networks for communities, nonprofits, and academics so that we can work, um, uh, so we can work on building community at the same time as we work on building research. Um, to develop grassroots community-based research, so thinking about the tools that Public Lab has developed, um, make data gathering and analysis community-centered, making it performative and descriptive of exposure experiences, and thinking back to um, that corrosion chart, developing better metrics for harm. So we can essentially theorize, enact, and defend the public right to research and the rights of researched publics. Um, and I just wanted to end quickly um, with a dedication of, of this talk to one of the first people who introduced me um, to what it's like living in the oil and gas patch, Rick Rawls, who very sadly um, died last week um, uh, in his home uh, with questions still unanswered about whether his peripheral neuropathy, whether the, um, the deaths of his livestock, uh, whether you know, the decline of his health was associated with oil and gas extraction. Um, so you know, there are real people um, behind this research. There's real lives on the line, and um, we need to develop an academic infrastructure that recognizes them um, and you know, records and prevents these harms in the future. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.